Hello and welcome to Farmerama. This month we hear from microbiology pioneers in the USA about compost's role in building microbial life and how to produce a more fungally dominated compost. I have a few thoughts on soil health versus soil carbon. We have a rallying cry from a member of La Via Campesina to get us all in action growing food. And we give you a teaser for one of the characters in our upcoming series, Cereal, which uncovers the secrets behind the bread we eat. Finally, we hear about a community project growing their own beer. Dr. David Johnson is a microbiology researcher and associate at the Center for Regenerative Agriculture and Resilient Systems at Chico State University, California. He's been doing breakthrough work creating biologically balanced fungal-dominated compost for carbon sequestration and improved soil health. He's devised a compost methodology with his partner, Hui Chin Johnson, called BEAM, Biologically Enhanced Agricultural Management. Compost is usually thought of as fertilizer, a way of adding nutrients to the soil. Beam compost is a bit different in that it builds soil health by building soil biology. It replaces soil microbes in soil degraded through extractive agriculture methods. Abby caught up with David and Hui Chin a few weeks ago at the Climate Underground Conference at Canny Fork Farms in Tennessee. In the last few years, um, you've come across something that you're quite excited about. And could you tell me a little bit about that? Um, you know, when was the breakthrough moment, or when was a light bulb moment came on, and, and what does that look like? Well, it started with a job I got at New Mexico State University with a, an environmental research and education program. Uh, do something good with dairy manure. It was the, the second day on the job, and my boss called me and he says, "I've got a project for you." You can imagine my excitement. Dairy manure. <laughs> so. Uh, but it turned out a little different than what we expected as far as the results. The people that had it a decade before us had concluded that compost was bad. The compost they made from the dairy manure was bad for soils. And we kind of scoffed at that, but looked at the data, they were right. They were putting down a very saline product that was actually uh, stopping plants from growing. So. We got the project. I started out doing a similar composting process, the windrow, where we would turn it. And uh, she got tired of me coming in with dirty clothes. And she says, we're going to do this a different way. So we put our heads together and we came up with a bioreactor that's actually static. You, there's no turning involved. It, uh, you keep the moisture content about 70%. That's optimal. What we found out now is for fungi to grow. It's aerobic because we put it on a pallet and we put, have tubes that run up the center so you get circulation up through the center. You're never more than a foot away from ambient air so the whole, whole process stays aerobic. And we allow it to mature over a year. And it was that maturity, in that maturity that we saw a change in the diversity of the microbes. The diversity quadrupled in the microbial community as it would mature. We put some of that into some trials, into plant growth trials, and we had extremely good results seeing plants grow twice with our compost, what any other compost did. We thought we should put this in the field and try that out. We tried it in the field and we've been on a plot now for about 12 years. And what we noticed is each year after we had applied, we applied this once, 
And at that time, we were doing it at about 400 pounds per acre, but we've cut back. We don't need to put that much now. It's actually about a pound to two pounds per acre rate. Quite a significant drop. But in that original experiment, we saw yearly increase in growth. And we only applied once, as I was saying. The management, after you apply this, is key. You always need to have something growing in these soils because that's what feeds the microbes and allow them to increase in population and increase in their, their functionality. And we would see these communities would start to develop, the microbial communities, for, for nitrogen fixation, both free living and symbiotic nitrogen fixers. We saw uh, microbes that were involved in mobilizing phosphorus. A lot of the soils that we have right now are very, uh, have a lot of phosphorus in them, but it's locked up. The, the, the soil physical chemistry doesn't allow the plant to access it, but we saw a lot of microbes that were involved in that releasing that out of that, those, uh, the chemical structures they're in and making it accessible to the plant. We saw microbes that were involved with metal oxidation, or you could extract, they could extract all the elements that the plant needed. We saw microbes involved with uh, methane reduction, methanotrophs, nitrous oxide reduction. About every problem that we have in agriculture and, and its influence on our uh, eco, the ecosystem that we live in, these microbes seem to be able to, to address it. We saw also a increase in uh, microbes that do phytohormones. They, they work with plants to increase plant growth. We saw microbes that would break down about every xenobiotic or every chemical that we put on a field. You know, 2,4-D, uh, malathion, all the uh, polychlorinated biphenyls that we see. Just almost every chemical that man has made, there's an organism that seems to, well, that's a food source for it. So it's, we just keep going on this, doing the research. We see uh, an upregulation in genes that are involved with quorum sensing. And quorum sensing is when either a single species group of microbes get together or a multi-species group of microbes get together as a community. And they can function as a community for expressing genes as a community that they can't as an individual. And we saw an upregulation, five to ten times upregulation in those particular uh, uh, messenger RNA that, that are used to, to transcribe these different proteins. So as it, this just opens up more and more our understanding of how these soils work, how dynamic they are, how if we start to bring the biology back into these systems, we don't need the fertilizers. We don't need all the pesticides and herbicides as well because you start to improve soil health with this process. What we're seeing, fungi are instrumental in both the logistics and communication in these soil systems. And what we've done with our agricultural uh, approaches for the last hundred plus years is everything we've done has been detrimental to the soil fungal community. We lose them, you lose the logistics, and the communication. And that just cripples your system. You're, you're, you're never working with a fully functional microbial community if you don't have the fungal community there. And it, it needs to be dominant by a biomass measurement. Um, we see such improved growth once you pull the, the whole system in there. It's, it's a system we're rebuilding. You know, fungi are not 
the ultimate end-all, be-all on this, but that they're instrumental in having everything work together. But you also have have to have your your protozoa, your microarthropods. It's it's a system, as I say, that we're rebuilding to uh, bring back functionality. We see uh, increases in in the the productivity or the net primary productivity of these systems up to a five times increase in the biomass production on the front end. On the back end, the changes that we see in respiration, these systems become more carbon use efficient where they respire less of this organic matter that you fixed into the air and they're actually putting it more into the biological forms in the soil. We see a, a five times reduction in the uh, respiration or, the, or four, time, four to five times increase in the carbon use efficiency of this system. Play both these against the end against the middle, you start to build up soil carbon at a significantly higher rate than what, we're, what we think we can right now. The uh, implementing or getting the soil microbiology back in a soil will have significant, significant impact on almost every major problem we have on this planet. We see that the carbon part of this, the carbon increase in the soil is, would just be like the icing on the cake. It's not the, uh, the focus of this. There's so many other issues as far as uh, having more water infiltration into your soils because you're building that carbon out. Using that water more efficiently. I mean, if you have a, a system that has better photos, photosynthetic capacity, then the water use efficiency and the photosynthetic uh, capacity both work together. You're capturing more carbon with the sunlight that you receive. Um, increasing the quality of the food that we eat. Because also what we notice as you restored this biology is the micronutrients become available again. We saw up to a thousand percent increase in iron and manganese in, a, in soils that it should have been decreasing because of the soil physical chemistry. But the microbes themselves free up these elements that the plant needs. Uh, what will that do for our health if we start to get those micronutrients back in? If, if the plants are healthier and the products that they give us, they directly correlated to our health. And a lot of these, uh, the foods that we get, it's the microbiome in those foods that we're also processing that gives us our health. So what would that do for, you know, if, if every continent on this planet could start looking at agriculture just a little different, start relying more on the biology, we might not have the mass migrations that we see. We might have systems that function in these, these foreign lands where they could start to rebuild their soils. There's so many issues that this could change. Our health probably being one of the biggest ones. And you know, how long are we gonna be able to afford the way the health system's going now? We are degrading our health because of the foods we eat. And it's just a simple change of perspective on realizing that we rely on our microbiome. We rely on the microbiome in the soils. All this works together in a system that we need to rebuild. If you're interested in composting, then you've got more to come next month as we'll be releasing the next in our Women of the Land series. This time we feature Rhonda Sherman, the queen of vermicomposting, talking about her book, The Worm Farmer's Handbook. At the Climate Underground Conference, there was much debate between soil scientists, politicians, and practitioners, and two things really stuck with me. 
One was that many soil scientists thought Gabe Brown's claims that he has increased soil organic matter by 9% in 20 years is impossible, and that it goes against all scientific evidence to date. However, Johnson and his crew from UC Chico felt that maybe it was possible, based on the extraordinarily positive results they've seen when activating the biology in the soil with the compost. I'm not convinced either way, but it was interesting to see how much debate it provoked, and still goes on. The other topic that I felt a little concerned about was the debate on soil carbon versus soil health. The climate change narrative predominantly centers around reducing the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. And there's no doubt that soil has the potential to sequester large amounts of carbon. However, I really felt that we could end up in a really bad place if we focus on soil as a carbon sink, rather than focusing on improving soil health. You could see the weird and wonderful shortcuts people were coming up with to sequester more carbon, like genetically modifying plants to take down more carbon, as well as using carbon markets to financialize the sector. To me, neither of those ideas considers the holistic benefits of soil health. Of course, improving soil health has the added benefit of sequestering carbon, but it's also so much more. It reduces flooding, provides better resilience in drought, more nutritious food, more consistent yields, and that's only the beginning. As farmers, I think we really need to reiterate to everyone that soil is so much more than a carbon sink. And we need to regenerate our soils and build resilience into our land-based systems, not just focus on how much carbon we can sequester. In my view, climate change is not just about carbon. It's about the many earth systems and building resilience. Jyoti Fernandez, co-founder of the Land Workers Alliance and member of La Via Campesina, spoke earlier this year at Fixing the Future, a brilliant conference put on by Atlas of the Future. Jyoti gave an impassioned call to action. She got people to their feet and all riled up, so we wanted to share some of what she said with you. So my name's Jyoti. And um, yes, I work with the Land Workers Alliance. Um, we're a union of small-scale farmers in the UK. There's not that many of us because the UK was one of the first countries to industrialize its agriculture and to remove the peasant farmers from the land and you know take those people that owned the land and were growing for their local communities and, and you know at, you know way back you know a century ago. And, and remove them from the land and push them into the urban centers to work for the industrial um, capitalism, basically, the beginnings of capitalism. And, um, and, but, you know, we're still pretty strong. There's about 1,500 of us in, in the UK. I have a farm myself. My father was from India, and his family were peasant farmers. Um, my mother was in America, and her family had come from Europe, from Italy, and from Germany on both sides, and started a farm in Iowa. But then that generation in the 1950s, 60s was when people were moving away from the land. And there was a real mindset that we actually needed to industrialize our agriculture. We had to move towards the Green Revolution in order to try and feed the world. But what was happening at the same time is this whole push across the world to take what was a world fed through agroecological farming systems, which is what Via Campesina, my organization, fights for. We are 300 million farmers across the world fighting for agroecology, which is the right to produce food, 
using the land that is owned by the community and by small-scale farmers, using the water resources and the seeds that we save and the animals that we breed and all the agrobiodiversity that's out there to feed our local communities and our families first and, and have a real connection to the land and the soil and the nature around us, and we passionately believe in that. Well, that was the dominant model of what the fed world and is still the dominant model of what feeds the world today. 70% of the world's food is still produced by peasant farmers using 30% of the agricultural resources. But in the 1950s, 60s, back when my father was learning about you know, the Green Revolution and science and all of these sort of things that are these solutions to feed the world, was when that model was being taken over by the political system as the dominant way to feed the world. And so, so many loans were given out and scientific resources and re research and development were given out to countries so that they can convert their agriculture to industrialized agriculture instead of using manures for feeding the land and, and compost and, and all sorts of things that came from nature and the systems around us, they started using chemical fertilizers, started using pesticides, started using herbicides instead of, you know, learning how to use a hoe and to, to plow with your animals or, or, you know, find other ways that you can mulch and grow food or naturally. You know, started using these uh, genetically modified or hybrid seeds to grow our crops, which were very convenient for supplying food to be shipped across the planet. But with that, losing all the tremendous amount of agrobiodiversity that was, you know, it is the bedrock of feeding our planet. All of this started, and as countries started to get pushed into this model of agriculture by a global economic system and lots of corporations that wanted to make money out of this transition, to a different way of feeding ourselves, then countries got locked into a cycle of borrowing money to, to take farmers that were on small plots of land and growing food for their local communities and convert them into systems when they're growing on big fields. And then those big fields, they work for the agribusinesses that then ship that food across the planet to feed everyone else. All these things take away the resources, the fundamental resources that are very important. For, pe for people to have self-sufficiency and food security and high nutritional value for their own communities. <laughs> in the UK, we, we believe strongly that we, we have to get involved in politics in order to be able to sort this out. As everyone who eats has a stake in the food system, you can make real choices. You can make real choices about where your food comes from. And I have to say, you know, after 20 years of standing on a market stall on a Saturday, I really appreciate absolutely everybody that makes those choices to come out and buy food from a small producer because as small businesses it makes a massive difference. But more than that, you're all citizens and you're part of a, 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 you know, a, a global democratic community and we have to take control of this planet because if we let everything that happens to it on a political level be dominated by agribusiness lobbyists and you know, the, the, the large farmers organizations that are promoting an industrialized foods model and, and the large landowners, then what happens that we're operating in, the context that we're all operating in, gets progressively harder and harder and harder. We cannot ignore that. Voting with your pocketbook isn't enough. It's a very neoliberal response to, 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 to an absolute crisis that we're facing, where we let capitalism and we let you know, the powers that are actually massively distorting the world we want to see 
have the power, and we have to take back that power, and that's extraordinarily important. So with La Via Campesina, we have 300 million members, and can you imagine what it's like to get consensus decision-making out of 300 million <laughs> members? <laughs> we, we have very long meetings, sometimes 18 hours long, with headphones on, listening to people, and we have a, you know, a speaking order of man, woman, youth, you know, and give everybody two minutes to speak, and then we come up with you know, action plans of what we're going to do to try and tackle the trade system, the World Trade Organization, the Committee on food security, the, 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 um, you know, all, all the different things that are going on, all the land grabbing, all the genetically modified seeds, all the pesticides that are being poured onto our fields and destroying our impact populations. You know, we think about women's rights and the rights of migrant workers and, 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 and how it all feeds into the, the crisis, multiple crises that, we, that we've got going on with war and racism and everything else. You know, we want, we want to create a real solution on a globalized level by all of us standing together to fight these things. Right? And, we, and, and we work in teams, and, um, and we come up with position policy papers, we figure out who's going to go to what meetings and get those voices of civil society and all of us that care about a bit better planet to those meetings. I trek back and forth to Westminster all the time, talking to as many politicians as possible. We have marches, we have demonstrations, we lock ourselves onto things. Whatever we can possibly do to make sure that we can reclaim this planet, and it has to start with what you do with your own life. It starts with what you do with your life, what your occupation you choose. And I, I really want to, to encourage as many as possible of you to go into farming. <laughs> don't just publicize farmers. Don't just invite farmers to conferences. Be a farmer. We need more farmers. It's the most sustainable occupation you could possibly choose. And raise your children that way. And feed your children that way. And respect and give maximum respect to farmers. And then... Take that and, and make that message the dominant message that gets to government. You know, we have to stand together on this because if we stand together on this, we can shift things. Social movements are the only thing that has ever shifted things. And if we can create that mass political consciousness that a better food system is what we need and demand in order to save this planet, then we can shift things. It's only been since the 1960s that we've had this huge amount of, of agrochemicals being poured into the earth, that we've had all these plastics wrapping up everything that are filling up our oceans. We can shift it back, and we have to do it rapidly. We only have about 12 years to act as all the youth, and my, all four of my girls are youth climate strikers, and they've been telling me to get a move on, you know? And so I've been trying to get, you know, I had two meetings with Michael Gove, our Secretary of State last year, and, you know, looked him in the eye and I said, we absolutely have to do something about this. And he's like, well, what do we need to do? And I was like, get me on the panel that sorts out the new agricultural policy. And he did, right? And, and, and the thing is, I, when I go to government and when we sit there and we try and take the voices of the farmers and all the passion of our youth and all of us who want this better world directly to the policymakers and say that what they're telling you is a lie, we can feed the world without destroying it, then we can get them to change their minds because they're human beings too and they're a part of this planet that's being destroyed rapidly underneath them as well. We have to call them out and we have to make this happen and every single one of you can be a part of that. If you want to hear more stories from the conference and also hear about pioneers working for a better future around the globe, then be sure to look up Atlas of the Future. We are very excited to announce that we will be doing things a bit differently in November and December. 
You may have noticed that co-host Katie Revel hasn't been on the show for a few months. Well, that's because she's been busy putting together a six-part series on the cereals industry in the UK, from soil to loaf. The first episode will be released Sunday 24th of November, with the following episodes coming out almost weekly. So you will have lots of Farmerama to listen to at the end of this year. The series is very aptly called Cereal. In the series, Katie asks how the industrial food system has come to dictate the way that seeds are bred, grain is grown, flour is milled, and bread is baked and eaten, and what impact that's had on producers, consumers, and the environment. The series seeks answers to those questions and introduces some of the people who are building alternative models that are fit for the future. One of the many people featured in this series is John Letts of Heritage Harvest. He's one of the original pioneers growing different types of grain in the UK. John spoke to Abby about how he first came across Heritage Grains and why he's so excited about them. So if we could just go right back to the beginning of your journey, maybe you can just tell us a bit about, you know, how did you become interested in grains? Now that is ancient history. That's a good thing I'm an archaeologist. <laughs> um, I grew up on farms. I grew up as a, what do you call a nerdy little kid collecting seeds. I was really interested in plants from an early age and gardening. Uh, skipping forward, there wasn't room for me on the farm, so I thought I'll study it. So I was really interested in genetics, and I started off doing plant genetics thinking I'll be a plant breeder. I'm going to breed new types of varieties of wheat that will save the world and feed the world, you know, green revolution. Let's do it. And this is the early or mid to late 70s. But after a couple of years, I worked as an assistant plant breeder and I got sprayed by a lot of very nasty chemicals one day. Agent Orange, well, it was purple when they sprayed me with it. It was a defoliant and a herbicide. I was working at a plant breeding project. And I thought, no, there's got to be a better way of doing this. So I switched and went into environmental science and started hanging out with people who I think had a different perspective. And I realized that the problem was not producing new super varieties. And that was just the early days of biotechnology, just, you know, the early days of GM. And um, I said, no, 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 what we need is more ecological ways of doing this. We need to mimic natural ecosystems. So I actually went into ecology and environmental science. So I thought, well, what is, what is this transition from hunting and gathering where we all lived as natural ecologists in a sense to farming? So I wanted to know more about that transition because Obviously, our farming systems have gone very badly wrong, and I want to know more about that. So I thought, well, the way of getting out that information is through archaeology. So I ended up doing environmental archaeology, looking at the history of plants, so archaeobotany, the short word, and I ended up at UCL. And I worked with some amazing people at UCL who really were the experts on the origins of agriculture, so the first domesticated wheats, how, how those wild grasses moved from, you know, from, from being wild into being domesticated crops. So I worked in, the, in Turkey for three summers as an archaeologist and on some of the earliest sites of agriculture because I wanted to understand all the different ways in which this transition to modern agriculture happened, or at least to agriculture happened. The later changes in the last century, which have, I think, destroyed agriculture, are uh, nothing to do with ecology or any of the other things. It's all about you know, corporate profit. So I tried to understand that genetically and in and, and all ways. Skipping forward, I ended up at the uh, University of Oxford at the Natural History Museum, and I was working on archaeological samples, and a friend walked in with a shoebox. 
He said, oh, this is going to change your life, John. And I said, um, why would that be? Opened up the shoebox and, and there were about 15 thereabouts, I can see the box, 15 different ears of wheat covered with soot, black. And he said, this is from a medieval roof. And there were two other archaeobotanists there. He said, this is from a thatched roof. And we thought, well, thatch decays. Organic materials will degrade. I didn't know anything about thatch. I'm Canadian. And I didn't realize that you, every 30 years, you just renew the roof, put a new layer on top of the old, and you don't even rake off the old. Well, you don't do that for the first couple of hundred years because you build up about a meter and a half thick of thatch, and then it becomes one off, one on. But the point is the bottom layer is never replaced. So if you can tell when the building was built, if the building's built in 1350, you've got a perfectly preserved base coat of medieval wheat from 1350. No one really believed it, so I had to prove that. So I did. I went out and I took samples of this ancient thatch from all over. And, and the striking thing in the shoebox was that every year was different. It was genetic diversity. It was a land race. It was the fact that there was that diversity. And, you know, I was writing reports on medieval farming, but it's all based on written records, manorial records, historical accounts. And it's all really subject to a lot of bias, you know, historical bias. But this was a chance to look at the actual medieval crops. In the end, I ended up going to University of Reading because Oxford wasn't particularly interested, to be honest. So I ended up at Reading in, a plant, uh, in the plant breeding department. And to be quite honest, they weren't particularly interested either in the end because they were all committed to biotechnology, GM again. So I thought, well, actually, it's very scientific to understand the way medieval crops functioned. It's about ecology. It, you know, science is a, is a means to an end. I'm a scientist. I wanted to know about the you know, genetics and the ecological dynamics in the field. Because if we're going to have truly sustainable farming, well, we need to mimic those natural systems. And what is a wheat field? Well, it's a wild grass ecosystem, isn't it, from the Middle East? That's what I was thinking, the way I was thinking. So I went through all the, you know, English medieval records and tried to make sense of it from illustrations and paintings, you know, and you can build up quite an interesting picture of what a medieval wheat field looked like. One of the reasons I did that, well, one was the bottom layer of thatch is very well preserved and often the whole plant is there. Based on that evidence, like the ratio of straw to grain, I can build up a picture of what they call the harvest index, the ratio of grain to overall plant biomass. So I can basically get to quite an accurate figure on what the yield was of a medieval field, not just based on manorial records. To do that, to compare with these samples, I started taking wheat out of the gene banks. What, what few? We only have a fraction of the genetic diversity that was in our fields that's, that's been preserved. And I grew them out in plots just to compare, but then that took on a life of its own because all the thatchers said, well, we want this really tall straw. The, the wheat's six foot tall and tough as nails. This is what we want because if they grow modern wheat, it's too short, it's full of nitrogen, it's very weak and it rots. They obviously want a roof to last for 30 years. So I thought, that's great. I can produce thatching straw. I might be able to fund my research that way. I certainly don't want to do GM research here at Reading, but not only that, look at all this lovely grain that's being produced. The waste, the byproduct from the thatching crop is a beautiful flower for making really interesting historic breads, which of course now you'd call that the artisan bread movement, but 20 years ago they weren't calling it that. So uh, growing out a thousand different little trial plots of these ancient heritage wheats was a chore. So you've got to plant them by hand, you know, harvest them with a sickle or snip them off and then thresh them and get the grain out. So I thought, I can't maintain all of this. So why don't I just do what people did in the past, which they grew 
mixtures, genetically diverse populations, and ecologically, in diversity, there is strength. And that's what all ecosystems are. The minute you have uniformity, nature hates uniformity. So, okay, I'll make it happen. So that's what I did. I literally mixed all the grain together of all these hundreds and hundreds of wheats I had. And also, I didn't have a farm. I needed something to grow them for me. And you can start off with a little tiny handful, 25 seeds, but it'll take you five years to get up to enough that's commercial. So if you start off with 500 little handfuls, you've got a little bit of a start, and then nature will just weed out those that aren't adapted. And that's all I did. So I started growing all these ancient grains, and one thing led to another, and I just kept bulking up the grain. The focus on the thatching straw slightly slipped for now, but I'm going to get back to it soon, I hope. And since then, then, you know, 10 years, let's say, the, the artisan baking thing has kicked off. So a lot of people got more interested in it for that. But really, it's only the last couple of years that it's really worked for me because now I found that alternative market with the distillation and, and hopefully the beer. So that was a very long-winded answer, I know. You said something short. We're going to be holding a harvest celebration, which will double up as a launch event for the cereal series in London on the 21st of November and Nottingham on the 29th of November. Watch out on Twitter for tickets, which will be available soon. Anne Bodkin of Grow Beer has been reworking her community in Brixton Beer through the Brixton Beer Company since 2012. They grow their own hops and make community beer. So it's the idea of bringing growing and drinking beer together. It's literally bringing those two aspects, but making sure that everybody who's involved is plays a part. So we nurture the growers, they grow some hops, and um, we collectively, we act like a patchwork farm. And then we work with a brewer to brew a... It's called a green hop beer. So you literally pick the hops and within an hour, um, the beer is brewed. And it makes a delicious, it's quite, it's quite a light beer. It's not a, it's not a um, heavy flavoured beer. It hasn't been, the hops, because they're freshly picked, it's quite a light beer. So we have brewed a beer for, since 2011. The project started in 2011. And um, it started, the idea of Grow Beer, it started in central London, a place called Brixton. So we had this idea, we called it the Brixton Beer Company, and we had our first brew in 2012, and we had about 35 growers who contributed, who, who, all, who all grew hops, and in September 2012, we all picked the hops, and we took them down to the brewery, and the brewer was called Peter Hayden. We brewed, uh, I think it's 1,200 pints in the first year, which we didn't think, which was amazing, because we didn't think that we would grow and get any beer for at least three years, because apparently that's what hop farmers do not make beer until about year two or three. Growers tend to absolutely adore and nurture their own plot. And what we were interested in seeing was that if, could we create something which was a collective between all of these growers that together they 
kind of we created something. So we put a call out on social media and sort of said, who would like to grow hops? Question mark. And we were most interested in seeing if people responded to it. So those who respond, who were intrigued by it, became the first growers collectively. So we were all growers, including the brewer. He grew as well. And it was it was like we were doing this collective single activity. Probably at half the people who were intrigued by the question had never grown a single thing in their life, which was phenomenal. They were intrigued by the idea, that, and that's the kind of people we wanted to work with. The actual act of growing is really straightforward, and it's a rhizome, so it's really kind of got really nurtured roots, gnarly roots, and it's relatively easy. But things can go wrong throughout the year, but like, that's like any hop. So it's relatively easy, yeah. About six months later, we um, got invited to the London Brewing Alliance um, at Fuller's Brewery, and... We basically wanted to test out the next part of the, the project, which was finding a brewer. Um, so we turned up one night and the um, Fuller's Brewery in their tap room was full of every brewer that exists in London. And we were given a really generous welcome um, by Derek Prentice, who's the head brewer there. And within about five minutes of us talking, um, the chap who was running Camden Brewery, Jasper, he put his hand up and he said, I'm going to buy every single one of your hops from forever. And uh, Helen and me looked at one another and we went, uh, that's not what the project's about. You know, we're not interested in selling the hops. What we're interested in kind of trading the hops, because the idea is um, challenging things about land ownership um, challenging things about you only do things for money and so this was more about what can a collective do without control necessarily without full control but actually you can trade your way so knowing that we had um the brewers were interested we then at that stage we we went in search of south london's only brewer at the time uh who was an amazing chap peter hayden who um had a microbrewery uh, called the Florence Brewery, and we got in contact with him and said, we've got this idea, um, explained what it was, said we'd been to the London Brewing Lights, and would you like to be involved? And he said, yes. And he said, I'm going to grow one as well. We had all the ingredients to make it happen, and then the absolute brilliant thing was everybody who started growing just really embraced the knowledge sharing and we did this on social media and so somebody would post a picture and kind of go I've got this bug on my plant you know what the hell is it and and somebody else would kind of tap in and sort of say oh that's a ladybird larvae you know keep it there love it you know and, and it became this we were we were growing together and growing our knowledge so that was lovely and then of course when we worked out the time to pick the hops Everybody, so the collective came together. It's the first time they'd ever been together because it'd all been virtual before. And that coming together, we'd said, pick the hops at six o'clock, get down to the brewery by seven and um, bring your hops. And um, it was fantastic. Everybody rocked up, even those who didn't grow anything. Nothing grew that year. But um, some people kind of opened this beautiful wooden box and there was a single hop cone inside. Others had 
been Linus full and it was just a joy because we said the project works and so we tried it. I think those are the kind of main moments and those each year those that joy of turning up and not knowing who's going to turn up with hops is actually so exciting because in life everything else is so controlled but this is um you know it, it it all happens on the night and it either happens or it doesn't happen but it doesn't really matter so there's a website grow beer and it's um you know the question is is um if you want to grow beer you click on that button if you're a brewer click on that button if you it basically just makes it really easy. So I think the roots of the project are still the right roots, but it's quite interesting how it's adapted. The the not having a not knowing whether it was going to take that risk and not knowing whether it's going to work, I think is a I think there's a brilliant brilliant um, knowing when to to make something happen and knowing when to kind of just let something happen. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Get involved, you know, make it happen, open your door, you know, it, it works in all sorts of ways. So, yeah, small farming communities can make it happen. Now for a request. We're really keen to hear what you think about the show and learn more about who you are. So we've created a short survey to help us understand what you like and what you'd like to see more of and less of on the show. It should only take you a few minutes. It's pinned on Twitter, in the show's episode notes, or you can head to farmerama.co and complete it there. Thanks for listening to Farmerama this month and every month. If you're able to share the show with your farmer and producer friends, or anyone you think might be interested, it's really appreciated. Farmerama is made by Joe Barrett, Katie Revel, and myself, Abby Rose, this month, with help from Louis Hudson. Community support for the show comes from Hannah Söderlund, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, Olivia Oldham, and Mary Hurd. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. Toodaloo!